Hello everyone and welcome today to our today's episode of Paideia Today. I'm here as always with my colleague Dr. Bill Friesen and today we are looking at uh, Flannery O'Connor, very different writer than many of those that we've dealt with thus far, uh, an American writer and a female writer at that, um, notable for writing a genre of literature which is often called uh, Southern Gothic um, but which she, and I think we will probably agree, is better described as Christian realism. And so we might want to get into the uh, various descriptions there. But uh, let me say a little bit about uh, O'Connor herself. She was born in 1925, so in the Roaring Twenties, and died in 1964, uh, suffered from lupus, uh, was uh, born in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, that was very much a part of her, uh, not only her own identity, but also the, the, the characters of her novels, which were also set in the American Deep South. She was a Roman Catholic, uh, not only by upbringing, but by conviction, uh, regularly read the works of Aquinas, uh, Summa Theologica, uh, and um, I think a very witty uh, and and keen prose stylists, I think we're both going to agree with, um, and very much of an anti-establishment figure, very interesting. And one of the things that I finally want to say is most recently the subject of count, cancel culture. Uh, although she's an esteemed writer of uh, Gothic, the Southern Gothic fictional style, and as such has been acclaimed and even been uh, celebrated for it, she has been considered to be a racist or the charge has been made and the very charge has managed to have her removed from certain certain institutional um, establishments, which pushed or brought about a, a pushback from other writers, including Alice Walker, the writer of uh, The Color Purple, uh, herself an African-American, uh, who objected to her being, uh, as it were, cancelled. Uh, but such are the times in which we live. I think we'll have reason to be able to discuss all of those matters in today's episode. But Bill, I think you wanted to start us off with a reading from the work we're going to look at, uh, probably her most famous one, the first of her two volumes, or the, at least the essay, or the uh, work that gave rise to the first volume, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Bill. Yes, thanks, Scott. And I'm just going to go straight into the reading here. Okay. <clears throat> the grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. She wanted to visit some of her connections in East Tennessee, and she was seizing at every chance to change Bailey's mind. Bailey was the son she lived with, her only boy. He was sitting on the edge of his chair at the table, bent over the orange sports section of the journal. Now look here, Bailey, she said. See here, read this. And she stood with one hand on her thin hip and the other rattling the newspaper at his bald head. Here this fellow that calls himself the misfit is a loose from the federal pen and headed towards Florida. And you read here what it says he did to these people. Just you read it. I wouldn't take my children in any direction with a criminal like that a loose in it. I couldn't answer to my conscience if I did. Of course, if you have read this story previously, there are numerous points of irony to be noted in that first paragraph alone. Um, and I want to add a little bit of what you uh, to what you said about uh, the writer herself. Uh, Flannery O'Connor is a fascinating individual. Um, she still was regularly included in many uh, anthologies, such as were read in high schools and universities in the United States, at least. 
Um, so she seemed to have some staying power. And there were a number of reasons for this. Um, of course, uh, she is a, uh, a woman. And as such, um, people were less quick to look at her with a view to canceling or excising her from the canon. She was a woman with a, not only was she a woman, but she was a woman living in the deep south uh, at a time when um, that brought certain difficulties with it, to be sure, because of the rather more rigid nature of Southern society and its expectations about people. Uh, so she was a woman living in the American deep south. She had a serious disability in the form of lupus. This was the disease that would carry away her father when Flannery herself was only 15 years old. Uh, to devastating effect. You're going to hear this sort of motif recur actually with numerous uh, female writers here in the 20th century. We'll see it again when we have to talk about Sylvia Plath. Uh, but uh, the effect was devastating on the young Flannery O'Connor, who was at a vital point in her uh, psychological uh, development and development as an artist and a thinker. Uh, so she had lupus. Lupus would eventually take her life. Uh, ended early, though she did live longer than uh, it was predicted she would have. So she's a woman living in the Deep South with a debilitating illness. And on top of all of that, as you've mentioned, Scott, she was Catholic. And being a Catholic in American Southern comfort, uh, uh, culture is, uh, in some ways, uh, brings with it, again, some other challenges, which are not faced by Catholics in other parts of the United States. So many things were stacked against Flannery O'Connor. Um, but to that impression, we also have to add that many people, when they hear Flannery O'Connor reading something or saying something or in an interview with somebody, because she was recorded numerous times, um, they, they suffer, as I do, from a bit of a disjunction because there's a subconscious assumption in my mind that if I'm hearing a really strong Southern accent, I'm not going to be hearing anything, or so goes the cliche, I'm not going to be hearing anything particularly intellectual, cultured, or anything like that, anything particularly eloquent and erudite. When in point of fact, Flannery O'Connor is, uh, as you've already hinted with uh, her readings, a formidable uh, thinker and speaker and a debater. In fact, uh, many people refused to debate her in university circles because she was so formidable and she would make people look bad uh, who had already built up a, a reputation in certain fields, particularly around art, literature, and religion. Um, so an extremely, extremely, um, well-educated woman, a very witty woman, um, who nevertheless, uh, her characters, and as you could hear from the discourse in the paragraph that I just read, uh, her usual characters are, quote-unquote, people of the, you know, good country folk and stuff like this, um, having blunt, honest conversations about various things. So there's a bit of a disjunction there. This is the same with another practitioner of Southern Gothic, uh, the other great figure in Southern Gothic, uh, William Faulkner. Uh, who likewise um, was an extremely well-educated individual with a sharp wit and a keen sense of reasoning and debate uh, for which he doesn't get a lot of credit sometimes. So fascinating woman um, in a lot of ways. Um, she was also an avid uh, ornithologist. She loved birds. And this was the case since she was at least six years old. When she was six, she taught a chicken how to walk backwards. Why should our listeners care about that? Um, because the film of her backwards walking chicken, which featured herself, her six-year-old self in it, um, 
was a film that was circulated for intermissions and things like this across the length and breadth of the United States. And Flannery O'Connor said with a nudge and a wink that it was her moment of greatest celebrity and everything since then has been anticlimactic. <laughs> so um, she's able to laugh at herself as well, which is refreshing. Um, Scott, did you want to talk a little bit about more about O'Connor or uh, her use and pioneering work with Southern Gothic? Not exactly. I think by engaging with the text, we'll be able to address that a bit uh, more persuasively than I would just be able to do so in summary. I did want to address the charge of racism, or at least uh, read an extract from Alice Walker in her defense, which I think would carry more weight than I could as well. Mm -hmm. um, Walker's claim uh, in signing a defense of uh, O'Connor was that the essential O'Connor is not about racism at all, which is so refreshing coming as it does out of such a racial culture, namely the American Deep South. If it can be said to be about anything, then it is about prophets and prophecy, about revelation, and about the impact of supernatural grace on human beings who don't have a chance of spiritual growth without it. That's Alice Walker commenting on uh, O'Connor. And I think uh, rightly addresses the main emphases here. And I, I think the charge against uh, uh, O'Connor is quite frankly, a trumped up charge and, and not just uh, slanderous, but uh, totally unfair. If you read any of the corpus of O'Connor's work, I think you will struggle to see any signs of racism per se. You will see more a portrait of the Deep South, which was a racial culture, but that is all the more reason to find uh, it as uh, refreshing and persuasive because it doesn't reinforce those things it either rather uh, looks a little bit more keenly. I think the objection is that she is not only writing about the plot of the uh, American, uh, African American, and so forth, but that's because her aim is rather more um, profound than that. And it's, it's namely the poverty of the human condition, full stop. And that includes blacks and whites. And yeah. that's, I think, the focus here of a good man is hard to find, which is an ironic title. Um, it does lead one to question. And I, I remember when I first read it, having read the title, you're questioning, are we going to find this good man? And we could conclude that the good man that we find in the end is the misfit, who is the serial killer, because the misfit strikes us as a man of enormous integrity and integrity we associate with goodness. Um, and almost always, because we live in an age where so little integrity is to be found, if we find somebody who is uh, as in, uh, of such integrity as the misfit, we might conclude that he is therefore a good man. But that is not, I don't think, uh, the conclusion that O'Connor wants us to draw, uh, but rather that there is no such thing as a good man. And that's, that's the point, and that is uh, the Christian realism. Now you might want to call it Southern Gothic because it is um, surprisingly for a female author in particular uh, with the manners, the genteel manners of the deep South uh, full of macabre details, murders, etc. But uh, Christian realism, I would say is a more accurate uh, description of what she's just, what she is portraying for 
the reader because she is effectively declaring Christian doctrine on the depravity of human nature. And that uh, is obviously going to be the case when we have a serial killer. It's less obviously the case when it's going to be the grandmother who is a genteel old lady who we see from the beginning of this tale to the very end, a deceptive and uh, manipulative and cruel and quite frankly, um, selfish old lady who's willing to even um, sacrifice her own flesh and blood to the misfit in, in the hopes of saving her own life. And only at the end does she undergo a sort of a transformation, but I don't want to give that all away right now. We'll get to that in a bit, but it is a very interesting story in the sense that all of the facade of gentility and uh, manners and goodness is stripped away from the characters uh, and in the end, the, the only one who appears to have integrity is the very worst character in the story, the serial killer, the misfit. And so that's yeah. interesting. And that is the realism. However, it is a realistic portrait of human nature. That's, that's what I would say. I have a quotation that feeds into that quite okay. smoothly. Uh, quote, the stories are hard because she was oftentimes criticized for writing stories that were hair-raisingly grotesque and violent and unexpected and shocking. Uh, remember, this is life before shock culture uh, and things like that became highly fashionable. Uh, so obviously she was uh, regularly critiqued for writing stories this hair-raising, which uh, you know, she did. Um, quote, the stories are hard, but they are hard because there is nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism. When I see these stories described as horror stories, I'm always amused because the reviewer always has hold of the wrong horror. Um, so she's looking straight into the face of the horror in some senses when she's going after this, but she's doing it very much from a Christian perspective. She's a realist. Life is, uh, and this is one of the things I regularly talk about with my students when we go over this story. Um, I tend to think of the grandmother's chief failing being the fact that the woman uncritically lives her life according to cliches. And we've heard many writers across the ages inveigh against um, using cliched uh, verbiage to describe themselves in their world. And we've heard others again, get a little more complex and critique cliches in terms of cliched thinking about themselves and the world. But Flannery O'Connor ups it a level in my view so that uh, we encounter a character who is living her life according to moral and spiritual cliches. Um, she's a lazy, she is spiritually lazy and irresponsible, grotesquely so, but then so is almost everybody else in the story. And this brings up a common protest I get from my students. They will get two thirds, three quarters of the way through the story, very short story, and they'll say there's not a single sympathetic character in it. I loathe them all. And this course sets up your potential for making the mistake of admiring the misfit as some kind of anti-hero figure because he's got integrity. Mm -hmm. It's true. He does have integrity. He has yeah. principles. It's, it's consistent. very true. Mm -hmm. Yes, he is consistent. Um, and he does not deviate from his principles, no matter how hard it gets. Well, surely that <laughs> excites admiration from us. And in one sort of practical instrumental sense, why not? Uh, but on the other hand, we see this time and again, particularly in the 20th century, where certain monstrous figures live those monstrous lives and conduct those monstrous careers with incredibly strong integrity. And they draw people to them because they have such integrity. 
The misfit fits in as a type, a particularly prevalent type, I would argue, in the 20th century. Um, and she says to him, and he addresses this point point blank, I, I know that you're a good man. And he just won't let her play. Unlike Red Sammy earlier on, no, I am not a good man. I'm. He, he looks in the mirror and he's seeing clearly, uh, you, you mentioned here before we began recording, he sees as the prophet sees. Um, he sees the horror of the human condition and the horror of the self immersed in that human condition. And then he speaks out that awful truth uh, and lives out that awful truth. Uh, he's a monster. He doesn't want to be a monster. This is very, very interesting to me. Uh, he deeply, deeply yearns to be a good man. And yet with integrity, according to what he knows about life, he cannot be a good man. He's the only character in the book who does want to be a good man, but he cannot because of his integrity. It gets in his way. Um, so also, there, he, he, does a, he does threaten because of all of the awful characters that we see in the lack of, and we're desperate. The, the interesting thing and the thing that I think that upsets people so much when they read this and they read that it's by a Christian novelist and they conclude that it is Southern Gothic rather than Christian realism, is they're desperate for a hero to emerge here yeah. in, the, in, the, in, the, in the typical moral uh, narrative of, a, of good versus evil. Where is the white shining knight here? There is no white shining knight that appears. The only one that we're left with in the end who might be and reverse the expectations, which is itself a consistent trope of the hero narrative, one that reveals himself in the end to be actually the knight in shining armor, despite the appearance, is he threatens or promises to become the hero, but what he says on this front uh, pulls that rug out from under us. And, and, and he says, in fact, he says, Jesus thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do, but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do, but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. So he recognizes the radical claims of Christ about human nature, uh, which the supposedly Christian grandmother who calls upon Jesus name, in fact, calls upon him three times. And the question for the reader is, is she invoking Jesus or is she using it as a cuss word? And I think rather it's probably the latter who doesn't, the, the woman who calls herself Christian and yet doesn't understand who Christ is. And yet this man who is almost a prophetic figure has recognized the radical claims of Jesus. And this leads to an interesting response from the grandmother herself, a rather transformative one just before she gets shot. Um, but it, it, this does not make the, uh, the misfit a good man it makes him clear-sighted about the very thing which all of us are deceived on, namely the goodness of human nature. And this is why I think it's it's such a radically powerful um, work at the end. Like we're in the 20th century now, our, our fourth season in Paideia today. The assumption of this culture are the, uh, the legitimacy of, of a Christian worldview. But the Christian worldview is rarely understood by those that call themselves Christians, because there's a there's a, a contradiction there. There's a uh, we assume that people who are Christian are good people, 
and that they're claiming to be good people. That's the assumption of the world. That is not what the Christian faith actually uh, declares. The Christian faith declares that everyone is radically evil and that Christ had to give his life to atone for those radically evil people. And there was no other way because there was no, there was no one righteous, not even one of these people. That was the necessity of the atonement. Flannery O'Connor understands that in her portrait. Her contemporaries regard this as macabre. It's Southern Gothic. She's saying, you don't understand the things that you think you understand. So it's very, very powerful stuff, I think. Yeah, you can encounter this kind of this sentiment on the part of many modern Christians to this very day who will insist that, you know, because I'm a Christian, I'm a good or at least better person. Better, at least. When in point of fact, you're not even on the scale. There is no continuum. That's an illusion. Um, you are either totally fallen or completely sanctified, um, saved uh, under grace. Um, and you yourself don't acquire any credit for any of this. It is by grace that you have um, a way out made available to you. And it's a uh, and uh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies you. You get no credit anywhere on any of these fronts. Indeed, and I and I think that she is very clear sighted on that, and, uh, and thus I prefer myself the uh, description of her as, as Christian realism rather than Southern Gothic. The reason that it is described as Southern Gothic is because it is very dark. It is extraordinarily dark, and most certainly against perhaps the expectations of what would be a christian portrait of the world which is the which is there's the good characters and the bad characters there's light and darkness and they're totally separated we don't find that that's here at all and maybe that should lead her uh her uh her uh critics to consider whether they've actually understood uh what the christian faith teaches rather than to regard her as some sort of outlier on this because i don't think she is an outlier i think she's got it right yeah, um, you could say by way of extension, if we wanted to twist things here, um, that the entire Christian worldview is Southern Gothic, if that's what you want to call it, I guess. Um, but of course, Flannery O'Connor uh, pushes back against that. Uh, where's our hero figure? Where's our good figure? Have you not read the title? A good man is hard to find. I right? just consider the, the, the wit and irony of mm. Flannery O'Connor, and that immediately makes sense, i.e. there <laughs> is none, no, not one, as you said. Hmm. Um, so we need to take that into account. Now, there's a, there's a bunch of things here in play. The story is actually a lot more complex than I think a lot of people initially think. We've got the motif um, already of grace that you've mentioned here, this counterintuitive loving those who do not deserve love. Um, and you get that weird counterintuitive moment at the last moment as she reaches out towards him saying, you're one of my babies. And then, of yes. course, at the instant he, she makes contact with him, he recoils, quote, like a snake and shoots her three times in the chest. Um, Interestingly, three times as well, right? Yeah, three's the magic number, as mm. Sesame Street used to say. <laughs> um, so we, grace is really, the concept of grace is really important to understanding this story. So's the issue, the interrelated issue of, of faith. Faith is key to what's happening uh, in here. Uh, the misfit says, uh, because he yearns to be that, not good man, but that sanctified man in some senses. He doesn't like being who he is. He loathes it. He hates it. He it's hates awful. himself. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah, 
he, there's an existential hate that drives the man. You know, he's not long for this world um, because of his. Well, let, let's dispel the idea that he's a Byronic antihero. He is not no. an antihero. And he'll be the first guy to tell you as much. Um, that's why he rejected the, uh, the claim that he was a good man from the grandmother. Yeah. Um, but he yearns after not being this character. He yearns after he knows that there's something more. In some senses, you could even say that this, uh, this psycho killer is closer to Christianity than the seemingly innocuous grandmother and all her seeming proprieties. Um, but he yearns to have seen it himself. If only he could have made that step of faith, and there's that word, if he could have made, could have made that step of faith, then, um, then maybe. But because he doesn't have adequate faith, he can't. And so he embraces its opposite, and he lives that awful life that he's now currently living. And this ties in also into a third thing, which is quite interesting. Flannery O'Connor was very interested in the, in the nexus between faith and art or faith and literature specifically in her case. Um, and she was one of these artistic figures of the 20th century and the 19th century who insisted that uh, the core of an artistic piece's value, however you understand that, is something which defies paraphrase. Very, very important to understand about there's, there's a mystery at the center of a good story, she said. Um, that you can never just paraphrase to somebody else. All you can do is put the story in front of them and get them to read it. It's the only way they will ever come in contact with that. And this lines up with things like when you see um, painters who are asked to explain the value of a piece that they have painted and all they can do is sort of stare in bewilderment at, the, at their interrogator and then point back at the painting. Or they ask the, the same defense question. is already there. That's the defense, right? Yeah, yeah. it's like I don't expect me to parasitically speak in some peripheral way to the core value of that piece of art that I, that that was produced there. Likewise, classical composers, you know, say, somebody will say, you know, uh, in this symphony here, can you explain, you know, why it's such a magnificent piece of art? Everyone says it is, but we want to hear from you, the composer, why it's a magnificent piece of art. I think it was Brahms uh, who responded by staring again in puzzlement at his interrogator and then sat down again and played the piece again. It's like, there you go. You're not getting it at this point. You know, me speaking secondarily to it is not going to help. So Flannery O'Connor insists that you, that the best stories always defy paraphrase or their value defies paraphrase. But this also meant in turn, this is a point she made at numerous points in her career. She gave, by the way, over 60 uh, university lectures and debates um, in spite of her lupus. So very, very active in university life and intellectual life. And she insisted that if you that, that the, the great value of art existed primarily at the emotional rather than the intellectual level. So this meant that you had to be open to feeling in the first place. And if you look at characters like the grandmother or Bailey or the nameless wife or whomever, you can see that these people are profoundly dead and indifferent to that step of faith where they genuinely want to feel the real, new, different, strange thing that the story brings to them. So appreciating art is bound up in Flannery O'Connor's view with faith. It's a faith act in some senses. Um, and I would have respected this less had it come from a less intellectually formidable author, but for somebody who is intellectually formidable and who, um, who uh, is known to be somebody who is deeply immersed in that life to say that the primary value is at the emotional level and you have to be open by way of faith to feeling the artistic value, I can respect that a lot more coming from somebody like Flannery O'Connor.
Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think we spoke before the uh, our episode again as we were discussing what we would, how we'd come at this. Um, how O'Connor is emphasizing the importance of um, the act of a of art as a as a verb rather than as a noun, rather mm. as a as something that is happening rather than something that has happened. So as a, something that is experienced rather than something that is just that has just been created. There's a, an ongoing process there. And um, I think that there's something there and there's something vital there. And it's something that gets picked up. I think it's there in the classical era, for sure. You can see this disjuncture between the act of creation and there are different types and genres of literature. And then there's the uh, actual reception of that and how it transforms the audience and has a certain effect on the audience and that idea of an effect on an audience to some degree disappears in the neoclassical era or at least it it disappears from the minds of the critics i'm not sure it's there in the works themselves i think there is a, a, a decided effect on the audience and those who are writing the works um, have that in view but the theory around that often ignores uh, the effect on the audience and that um, I would say that oversight is uh, addressed by the romantics and their, uh, their understanding of the importance of the of the audience and the reception uh, of the work in order to actually make the work what it purports to be it, and and that is concurrent with in the 18th century the the sensibilities of let's say the uh, Methodist movement and the emphasis on enthusiasm, namely the, the uh, effective response, the emotional response to the truths of the Christian faith in order to demonstrate that you actually have understood that. And it's very, very much uh, criticized by contemporary Anglicans and others, this, this uh, emphasis on subjective feeling. I think they misplace their criticism to some degree by saying that it is only a subjective thing. It is both objective and subjective because it's truly itself when it's truly received in its um in its personal dimension and that is what i think o'connor is so very good at and why she probably uses what her critics call southern gothic and these macabre details because they are powerful and lurid in their details because she wants to illustrate the the radical nature of uh, of the gospel message and the way she does this is by portraying very extreme situations and nonetheless she's uh, applying them down to the very uh, most basic level uh, and her characters are not sophisticated as you say um, but then nonetheless they are, are recognizable I think and in her own uh, landscape uh, Bill did you want to add something to that yeah I mean, this ties into you know, conversations you and I have had stretching way back in the podcast, back to Greek conceptions of religion and art, because uh, remember, like uh, to them, uh, the experience of religion and the experience of art have a great many analogies. Um, one of them, of course, is that sense of dinos, that sense of overwhelming, uh, a sacred sense of uh, a sacred, overwhelming sacred sense of awe and wonder that is shared by both the religious experience and the artistic experience. And you use the word enthusiasm, which of course uh, connects to a related word amongst the ancient Greeks, which is enthusiasmus, um, being filled with the, God. with the God, being filled with the divine. And it's something that you experience to draw on O'Connor's language here. 
Um, she insisted that there's a compelling mystery uh, which defies simple paraphrase. We've already covered that. And that this means, of course, that the best of art can only be experienced, never explained. This was the dichotomy she liked dragging out on a regular basis to try to explain it to people. But the problem is that she lived in a world so made so numb by verbal, intellectual, moral, and spiritual cliche that she had to use extreme and lurid um, stories and terms and plots in order to penetrate the numbness of her modern reader who was unwilling to take that step of faith and uh, experience the power, uh, the otherworldly power of good art. Um, so it all, pull, it all comes together in a very nice model for O'Connor. One doesn't have to agree with it, but one does have to understand it to begin understanding the value of, of, uh, of her writing. One of, one of the things that she's probably addressing is the growing sense uh, that uh, I think we can see in the 20th century, but even probably a little bit before that, but this idea that man uh, is, a, is a, a product of, uh, of chance, of accident, uh, of, of evolution, of you know, a, a natural product, but there isn't something uh, essential about human nature. And, and the, so they're, they're really the product of their environment and everything can be excused by the environment. There's nothing in mankind that can be held responsible for anything. Um, and I think uh, O'Connor is not willing to accept that premise. She, he's gonna say, no, there is something there that's radically evil and for which we are fully responsible. But on the other hand, for which, uh, uh, although this is a conundrum, it's one that we cannot solve ourselves. Yeah. It's one that requires external intervention. And I think O'Connor portrays all of those things and she does it through various means. So the, the, there's a dramatic foreshadowing. We could even say something like um, pathetic fallacy in the, in, the, in the clouds that are in the sky at the outset of the work. Uh, towards the end, these have been dispelled. There's a there's clear day when the, when the lady uh, is shot by the misfit because now we know that all of her attempts to cover up the fact that she is as sinful in her nature as the misfit have been removed by the misfit. At that point, she is shot. But why is she shot? Well, because the, there's, the misconceptions are gone at that point and she gets what she deserved, uh, which they all received in the end and the misfit acknowledges that he himself also deserves. So those things, that, that clarity has come there, but it's a clarity that is meant to be liberating and not simply to be received with uh, uh, depression as if it were some uh, monstrous charge that was made, the, the Southern Gothic charge, that people are not really as bad as O'Connor portrays them. O'Connor would say, on the contrary, they are as bad, and you are as bad as I'm portraying these characters in my novels to be. That's the point where it really strikes home, I think. And, and again, teaching in a Christian context, as I do in a Christian university, I think often the audience is shocked that these claims as pervasive and and deep ranging as they are are being uh, alleged against christians that's shocking to them yeah it's you and i touched on this when we discussed frankenstein yes Mary Shelley's frankenstein with this notion that my environment made me do it I mean, which she modern, thought was true she yeah, thought was it, true. it's the modern equivalent of the devil made me do it i don't have so it's very interesting if you compare these two here. works then right if you compare yes. frankenstein with this Compare the real Gothic with the Southern Gothic, and and yes, 
O'Connor has a far more radical view of how bad we are. Yeah, and as I said right at the outset, she does not think that good and evil operate on a continuum. You either are good or you are evil, and there's no middle ground. It's like one of those flicking light switches. It's either on or it's off, and with you, it's off. With all of us, it's off. And so the misfit is obviously and very garishly a, a, a monster. He's, he, he's horrific. He knows he's a monster. He's embracing the fact that he's a monster. He wishes that there were an alternative, though, which makes him fascinating to me, amongst other things. Um, but it also means that, as you've already implied here, that the grandmother is no better than the misfit. They are both equally evil. Her with her pathetic uh, Southern gentility and um, and politeness and uh, seeming proprieties, um, she is no better than a psycho killer. They're on the same level. Only one of them is accepting that with their eyes wide open, and the other one is not. Um, I want you. I want you to address this, Bill. It's what we're saying is from is almost from the perspective of the outsider looking and making a judgment on the characters within it. But that's not the point of view of this novel it, or no. this short story. The point of view is actually from the grandmother. Why does O'Connor give us the point of view of the grandmother throughout the story, even if uh, O'Connor is giving this objective analysis of the, of the characters in the story? Why does she do that? And what's the effect of it? Well, one of the things, of course, if you're reading the story carefully, you conclude, I think, what I just said, that the grandmother is no better than the psycho killer. They're, but they're both equally bad. But of course, once that, that, that line of thinking gets moving, the conclusion in a reader who's reading responsibly is inevitable. And I am no better than the characters. And I loathe the characters. Yeah, but you are basically one of the characters. Ah, okay. So this right. is immediately and powerfully relevant. Um, you were talking about uh, certain universal characteristics uh, shared amongst people that we are not all uh, uh, super individuated uh, uh, people created by an environment, by a history, by a context, what have you. There's something that is enduring from person to person to person amongst other things, total depravity. Um, the day, right? Yeah, so this is another way of actually seeing clearly the fallenness of the self, the fallenness of the reader who's being honest. Do you admire the misfit's integrity? Yes, I do. Okay, are you going to behave with similar admirable integrity when you look in the mirror? Ooh, that's that's hard. Yeah, but you admired it, and so mimetically you're drawn into it. Um, it's, it's a powerful story operating at a very complex psychological level in that sense of self-identification with inevitable evil, complete and total evil, from which... There is no escape and for which you are entirely and completely guilty. It is on you. It's down to you. Um, there was another point I wanted to talk about there, but it's gone out of my head. It'll come back to me, perhaps. So once again, the claim of Alice Walker is the essential O'Connor is not about racism at all, which is so refreshing coming as it does out of such a racial culture. If it can be said to be about anything, then it is about prophets and prophecy, about revelation, mm -hmm. and about the impact of supernatural grace on human beings who don't have a chance of spiritual growth without it. So with that quote in mind, explain the conclusion of the work, Bill. As I say, the, 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 the sky clears. Yep. And she and says that line, you're one of my babies. What do we make of that line? Her. 
and he reaches out in what seems like love. Now, some of my students interpret that as just kind of the uh, the outplay of her ever want, ever spiraling madness as she faces her end, and she's got. So she's crazy. desperately trying to pull the wool over his eyes at the end. That's the that's not the even. I mean, she just she's she's ceases to be rational. She's right. delusional. She's it no longer makes sense. So you can't even find a reason in why she reaches out and says that to him. I don't, uh, having read her work, having read even this story, that doesn't seem to be the, to be the most plausible conclusion to me. Um, I think for uh, she all of a sudden does see the depravity of individuals and maybe herself uh, also in that. And she has loved in her own cheap cliched way, those fallen people. And she sees how they're all unified in that fallenness. And yet love reaches out, not to just, uh, not just to the good and deserving, it reaches out by way of grace to the fallen, and we are all fallen. And so, so you, see her, is, you see her as basically converted there at that moment and reaching out because she understands her own depravity and reaches out in kind. There's a transformation that takes place. There's a, there's a transformation. There's a translation to use uh, Catholic saintly language. There's uh, something of a, a weird spiritual apotheosis going on there as well. Um, she doesn't fully understand, but she doesn't have to. Remember, the best in art is, is experience, not explained. Yeah. And she, heaven knows if there's somebody in the story who can't explain anything, it would be the grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. And so there's a moment of recognition in the classical sense of recognition. Anagnorisis? No. Yes, exactly. And so she reaches out to, to he who she loves. And that, very interestingly, is what turns him into, what, what triggers the murderous frenzy. That's why he kills. He strikes as a snake, or he recoils like a snake. It's not just any old creature. He doesn't just recoil. He recoils oh, like a snake. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the imagery is obvious to me. Um, yeah, no, sure. Or at least the illusion seems obvious in Christian uh, understanding. Yeah, the hand is stretched out quite literally. And like Satan, he recoils in his fallenness and does what the fallen do. They murder. Yeah, and he, yeah. he murders and he says that very interesting off-quoted line right at the end there she would have been a good a good woman uh had there been someone there to shoot her every five minutes of her life every minute for every of minute life. of her life yeah um and again flannery o'connor is pointing back to uh learned backgrounds on this uh, kierkegaard says a similar thing uh in his writings and i think it's in uh, fear and trembling um we should always have our imminent death at the forefront of our mind. If someone invites you to a party, say, yes, I'd, I'd love to, but always add, unless of course I, I die before then. Um, because once your mortality is up in your face, as it was there with the grandmother, you can no longer live by the moral cliches. They will not do. The circumstances will blow those away as completely ephemeral illusions. And you are left to look starkly on yourself and your own spiritual and moral reality uh, in that same awful prophetic sense that the misfit does, but with another option in view. And then the question is, do you want it or do you not want it? And I'm going to go after another quotation here because it seems to speak into this as well. Quote, stripping away the dross to get at what really matters. This is what all great authors do. The difference is um, that I don't do this to reach an answer, but to encounter that place where there are no longer any answers. You have nothing left but faith or the blackness. And the misfit can't reach out by faith. And so he embraces the blackness and he murders and he burns and he does meanness to his fellow man, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I think the argument here, and this comes back to your point about uh, interpreting the end here, uh, the bottom line is this is a choice uh, ultimately and existentially that faces us all, either we have faith or the blackness. But let's not pretend via the cliches that there's middle ground and we can somehow negotiate a million shades of gray uh, and get by. You hear this again and again in moral, religious, and spiritual conversations. I'm basically a good person. Mm. Wow, you need to read this story. Mm. There is none of us that is good. And some of us are, are deluding ourselves and others are not. And then the question is, uh, whence and whither, uh, having, ha having looked starkly in the mirror? Indeed. Bill, I don't have much more to add to this because I think uh, we anything you would add would detract from the force of the points uh, being made. I think um, I think that uh, O'Connor is a magnificent um, writer and uh, I recommend her like I do all of the writers that we've had on the series. I think she has um, a power to her which is apparent in a way and we began with the Iliad and with the greatness of that work which I think remains to this day um, but it now we have the filter of the Christian faith which has a, a keener sense of human nature and I think O'Connor uh, is greater in the sense that the truths with uh, that she addresses to our condition speak to that in a way that I think Homer was oblivious to um, which is not to deny his greatness but still um, there's something very powerful here, and um, and and I think it is a, it will be of enduring value for that reason. It's on our uh, little series of podcasts. Do you have anything else to add to this, Bill? No, I think that's that's going to cover it. I mean, I could speak longer about this here, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure that's the best use of our listeners' time. Uh, I will say that we are going to be looking at Franz Kafka on our Sorry. next episode now. Our listeners may not know this, but Scott has dragged me kicking and screaming into this conversation. Um, I am not uh, an admirer. No, I am an admirer of Kafka, but that doesn't mean I like his work. Ah. Um, but of course, I suspect that he's done this largely in retaliation because I put Sylvia Plath on the reading list. Um, Indeed. No, I, I, that's unfair. That's so, not uh, why I did it. <laughs> it was as a bargaining so, chip. Yes. And I am adamantine in my position on this. Plath stays, therefore Kafka stays. All right. So well, we will as I say, you get what you deserve. A good man is hard to find, Bill. It's true. It's very true. All right. I think that'll uh, cover everything for uh, today. Um, I am, as always, Dr. Bill Friesen, joined here by my colleague, Dr. Scott Masson, and we'd like to thank you for tuning in, and we will speak with you presently. Take care. Thank you.